From the Global Compact Network Australia, I'm Kylie Porter and this is The Precious Report. This week on The Precious Report, we'll discuss what artificial intelligence is and the role of business in considering what human rights implications there are in the deployment of AI in our society. We'll also talk about the opportunities for Australian businesses to lead on responsible and ethical technology. Joining me in this conversation is Ed Santow, Human Rights Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Welcome to The Pressures Report, Ed, and thank you for joining me. Great to be with you, Kelly. So, Ed, just to start off with a little bit about your background, would you be able to take our listeners through what got you interested in human rights and how you ended up being a Commissioner for Human Rights in Australia? Yeah, sure. So, by professional background, I'm a lawyer, and I think it's probably quite good to out myself right at the start. Um, if ever I start, you know, lapsing into legalese, I, I, I don't want you to forgive me, but, but you can pick me up on it. I, you know, I worked briefly in a commercial law firm and, and, and I actually really enjoyed it, but I, I knew probably pretty early on from law school that I, I wanted to practice the kind of law that helps people, particularly people who might be disadvantaged or vulnerable or might not uh, easily have access to a paid lawyer, and uh, but 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 I really enjoyed my my time working uh, at the law firm that's now called King and Wood Mallisons. But but from then I moved pretty quickly uh, into um, I guess a more social justice area. So um, I, I did my postgraduate study over in the UK. I, uh, I I worked at the Law Reform Commission and uh, as an academic at, at the University of New South Wales. But, but the big job that I did before this one was as CEO of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. And there you could see uh, the way in which the law can bear very harshly on disadvantaged people. Did a lot of work with people experiencing homelessness, people with disability and others. And we saw time and again how those people needed a, a zealous skilled advocate to make sure that their rights were were, were properly protected um, and that we we talk we, we took our clients with us in uh, their process so if, if they wanted to speak publicly about their situation um, we wouldn't speak for them we would speak with them um, and we would help them have a platform to speak for themselves and so that that experience was formative was so important so valuable and affirming for me. And uh, then when the position of uh, Australian Human Rights Commissioner was advertised back in 2016, uh, I, I decided to apply. It was a fairly conventional recruitment process and uh, my hat was in the ring with no doubt various other people and I was fortunate enough to get the role. Thanks, Ed. That's a really interesting background. I mean, I think the, the work you must have done with the Public Interest, Interest Advocacy Centre would have been really interesting, um, particularly when I think about some of the work that the other organise, similar organisations like the Consumer Action Law Centre and you know, the Financial, Financial Counselling Association of Australia do. There seems to be a lot of consistent um, you know, similarities between that you know, vision to stand up for people whose rights are otherwise diminished. I think that's right, yeah. And it's a fantastic network of what are known as community legal centres, um, like those ones you've just mentioned. And I think they work together with very little resources, amazingly, with enormous skill and great heart. Yeah, the, the heart is definitely a big thing. And I guess, 
you know, you've done quite a lot of work in that advocacy space and public interest, consumer, consumer and disadvantaged rights. What then propelled you into this, this world of technology and AI? So not long after I started this role, my senior advisor, Sophie Farthing, and I decided that we, we really wanted to look to the future and see what were some of the issues that perhaps raised important human rights concerns but hadn't been uh, given the sort of uh, attention that the Commission can give to something. And we kept on coming back to the intersections between new technologies and human rights. And it became increasingly clear to us that it was this very important moment where we could see enormous opportunity for uh, new technologies to, to make our world better in many ways, um, including economic development, but, but also to make our communities more inclusive and, and, and to advance human rights in important ways. But for every one of those examples, there was a counterexample where uh, new technologies were sometimes being developed and deployed in ways that actually shut people out or that can increase disadvantage or can, or can make people's human rights more vulnerable. And so we, we needed to, I guess, find a way to create a project that would allow us to see how we can advance those opportunities but also kind of shine a light on and then address some of the risks and threats of harm. So you've talked about technology and, you know, there are obviously a myriad of new technologies that are coming out onto the market and they seem to change so rapidly. Just for the benefit of our our listeners, can you explain what artificial intelligence or AI is and why are there such strong connections between AI and human rights? So artificial intelligence is a bit of a catch-all term uh, and it brings together a whole bunch of different new technologies that that include machine learning, automation, which is more technique, uh, and and a variety of others. And what, what binds them all together is that the fuel for these technologies is our personal information. And so they rely very heavily on being able to trawl through big reservoirs uh, of personal information that sometimes is smooshed together. So my personal information is smooshed with yours and a million other people. And you can draw insights from that and you can develop new products and services off the back of that. And so the, the most obvious way in which our human rights are engaged is because they're, they're, these, these technologies rely on knowing us um, then, of course, our right to privacy is uh, going to be affected, um, both positively and negatively. But, but I guess you don't need the Human Rights Commissioner to be talking about, you know, the, the, the opportunities of innovation. They're real. Uh, but, but I think my melancholy duty is more to focus on some of the risks and threats of harm because uh, that's something, an area where there's been less attention. So the Right to privacy is the most obvious right that is protected. But as we see the way in which AI is deployed in reality and things like facial recognition, we then see that there are a range of other rights that are affected too. So we can see when facial recognition is used inappropriately, for example, in a policing context, then it can lead to threats to the right to a fair trial. 
Um, there can also be risks of unlawful discrimination on the basis of race, and gender, and so on. So, so really, it actually engages a full range of human rights, um, but we need to be really clear about how that happens. Yeah, and I, I guess from your perspective, you know, that unlawful discrimination is obviously a really big topic at the moment when we look at what's happening in the world around Black Lives Matters, but, but more broadly around some of the discriminations that have probably become a bit more prevalent in the human eye from, from COVID-19. So, you know, people seem to be a lot more conscious of the impact on, for example, migrant workers or um, the impact on, on people living in disadvantaged situations or people with, with disabilities. Um, so I'm sure that that conscious stream of consciousness around how, what the impact on them is could mm. potentially give rise to even greater human rights risks in the current environment as well. I think that's true. And, and certainly we've seen throughout history that in any moment of true crisis, there are parts of our community that just don't have the, the kind of safety net that many people, myself included, uh, have almost taken for granted. And those people are the ones who are most likely to be affected worst and first and in the, the most kind of um, long-lasting ways. And so uh, I think one of the things that we've been trying to do at the Human Rights Commission in responding to the pandemic is identifying uh, with government wherever possible and, and um, the community more broadly, who are the sorts of people that we really need to make sure are not left behind? Because I think the, the saying that is used quite appropriately and frequently is that we are all in this together. But that has to mean what I think it means, <laughs> which is that we're not going to leave people behind. And so that's, that's critically important when we talk about the pandemic. And then when, when you kind of apply this um, to the context of, of new technologies, there's a similar issue at play, which is that we, what we don't want is to create a kind of a two-track um, society where some people are able to benefit from the rise of new technologies like AI, but others bear the burden um, and pe perhaps I can give an example of this, you know, Kay Firth Butterfield, who leads some of the technology work uh, at the World Economic Forum. Uh, she's talked about how with AI, one of the things that worries her most is that we too often beta test some of these new technologies on some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Um, so she's talked about, for example, how that, that can happen with toys. Um, and that sounds like, you know, an innocuous area. But, but uh, you know, things like um, toys that, that, that basically collect personal information of the kids that they're working, that, that, that are playing with them um, and will speak back to the children. But actually what it's also doing is collecting all this person, personal information. It's then beaming it back to the company and it's drawing all kinds of kind of useful information for the company out of that. But it's creepy. At the very least, it's creepy and it can actually cause real world harm. And so perhaps another example that I think everyone in Australia would be well familiar with now is the so-called robo-debt scenario, where again, you had this new way of using technology to identify who might owe money to the government. It was done in an automated way. It was, as has been shown, prone to error and unfairness. And I think it's really uh, instructive that this system 
of, of recovering so-called debts was directed towards people who receive Centrelink benefits. So let me be explicit, directed towards a cohort of people in Australia that are among the most disadvantaged and vulnerable. And so when, when something went wrong, uh, the people who bore the brunt of those errors were people who were probably least able to, uh, to, to be able to withstand those negative effects. And do you, th- do you think that, I mean, the ro- you know, to your point, the robo-debt is obviously one that gets a lot of attention in the media and there are, there are obviously other examples of that, um, that I've read about globally in terms of, you know, banks using certain, I guess, assumptions on data to make assessments on, for example, the interest rate on a, on a home loan or a personal loan and how that actually, there's, I think there's a lot of research in the US that has shown that it actually led to the more disadvantaged communities um, within cities or states of the US were actually paying a lot more in interest rates than people in more wealthy suburbs, purely based on some of the, the metrics that they inputted into, into their, you know, their systems that calculate how much you should pay on a home loan. Is it the same sort of thing? Are these, these systems inherently receiving data that potentially isn't accurate to view society as a whole? Or is it some form of unconscious bias that's being placed into the algorithms that leads to these sorts of disadvantages? I mean, it can be a bit of both. Uh, and, it, and, and what you're describing, the use of algorithms in decision-making becomes incredibly sophisticated and complex quite quickly. But actually, it starts from something that's really simple that I think everyone can understand. And that is, if you're... Take, take one of the examples you just gave. If you're trying to work out whether a particular individual, a potential customer is likely to be able to repay the loan that you're thinking about giving this person, then then you need to be able to make some predictions about that individual. You you need to kind of predict whether the person is likely to stay in work or or not, uh, whether they're likely to be kind of sufficiently responsible to take that debt seriously. All of those sorts of things are the, the things that any bank or other institution that, that makes loans, those are the things that they'll think about. So what AI offers is the, the promise that, that if you gather together lots of personal information about this individual and others, you may be able to draw some inferences about how likely that person is to pay back their loan. Uh, and in, in a sense, you're, if, if those inferences are accurate, you're reducing the bank or the other institution's risk because you better understand whether the individual um, is, is likely to be a good customer. So, so that's the theory. What we've seen in practice is that sometimes it works exactly as the theory predicts in a very safe way uh, and um, it's a well-designed system and so on. But in, in other situations, you, you see categories of people in our community for whom the, uh, the, the inference drawing, the, the prediction, is unfair and inaccurate. So, so again, sticking with your hypothetical, if you take women, for example, as a particular group in the, in the community, if, you, if, if your algorithmic model doesn't take account of the fact that women tend to be more likely than men to take significant periods out of the workforce in order to undertake caring responsibilities, so I don't say that that's 
the right situation, just, just describing it as a factually accurate situation, then the algorithm may sort of draw the conclusion that women are more likely to lose work and to be out of work, be unemployed, and therefore less likely to be able to pay back a loan. And therefore, um, what that might mean is that, that, that women are less likely to be uh, offered a loan in the first place, or if they are offered a loan, they may be more likely to be offered a loan on less favourable terms than a man. Mm-hmm. And so, so the problem there could be the way in which the algorithm has been constructed, but it could also be the, the kind of data set that the algorithm has been trained on. And it could be a lack of kind of understanding about how women and men kind of go through life in some sometimes very similar ways, sometimes very different ways. But if you if you draw inferences in in a way that is not properly cognizant of your context, then you're you're likely to cause disadvantage and, and unfair disadvantage to particular parts of our community. And we've seen that happening as 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 you point out. And building on that, how do you think Australian businesses in particular are handling the this AI revolution and, and, you know, thinking about your concept of the leave no one behind, which obviously fulfills a lot of the values of the GCNA and the values of the UN Global Compact, particularly when it comes to the sustainable development goals. How are we tracking? Like as a, as a nation with a lot of businesses, are we tracking well in terms of using AI to ensure that people aren't left behind? It's a great question. And I think we're doing reasonably well and we could, uh, do better. So in, in this project and, and in my role as uh, Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, I've, I've had the great opportunity to speak with a lot of companies here in Australia and also overseas. And it's a bit of a generalisation, but, but work with me here. <laughs> I, I've kind of come to divide companies into three groups when it comes to the way in which they, they're responding to the rise of artificial intelligence. There's uh, one group that is utterly cavalier about the risks associated with AI. They're they're essentially saying, look, we have this opportunity to to make decisions that are are better, more efficient, um, that it will essentially uh, make us more money and we're going to do it. And yes, there may be some risks, but look at all these benefits and so, you know, we're just going to push on, you know, that, that, that expression, move fast, break things. And for a while, they've kind of been getting away with it, a lot of those companies. But I think now that both citizens who are also consumers and government regulators and others are all kind of wising up to some of the risks, I think that, that the companies in that first group are under enormous risk themselves. I, I think that that, that kind of um, approach not only is it morally bankrupt I think it's going to be legally much more fraught anyway so that's category one category two basically looks at the companies in uh, category one and they say good grief you know what a huge risk it is to grasp any of this new technology you know that we're referring to as AI and so let's you know throw away all of our computers let's get out the typewriters let's kind of get the you know, the quill out and and uh, forget about technology at all. Um, and I'm afraid, I don't think that that approach is going to be very effective either because, of course, uh, it, it, it throws the baby out with the bathwater. 
it, you know, you don't get any of the opportunities or the benefits that new technology brings. Um, and uh, yes, you may, you know, address some of the risks, but, but you know, that, that is not a measured approach. So that brings me to the third group. And there are some, uh, I think, Australian companies in this group, and I wish there were more, who are essentially saying, look, we do see the, the benefits of AI. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a really mindful approach when it comes to thinking about how we can integrate AI in what we do to make sure that when we have a use case for, for, for AI in how we do our business, we're going to be very clear on what the risks are, what are the steps we can take to address or at least mitigate those risks and whether those steps will be adequate in order to protect the basic rights of Australians, the, the, the people that we're interacting with. And I think, as I say, that that group of companies, I think, will, will be able to harness many of the benefits of AI, but they'll also, I think, be riding a wave that is just building now of uh, citizens who are saying, look, we, we care deeply about our, our rights being baked in and you know, into the way in which AI is developed and that, that those are the sorts of companies that will also have a kind of competitive advantage. Do you think those companies, and, and let's just for, for argument's sake refer to them as the balanced, the balanced group, do you think these are the companies where they have ethics officers or, you know, chief, chief ethics officers, whatever, you know, wherever they might sit within the organisation, that work very closely with, say, the technology teams to make sure that there is that level of consideration around what are the impacts of what we're producing or manufacturing going to have on the human rights, not only of our consumers, but of our employees? Kylie, that's such a great question. And maybe I can say why I think it's such a great question, because <laughs> we've seen in the last couple of years as, as people have become more and more conscious of some of the risks and threats associated with AI, that there's been a growing conversation about ethics and about the kind of ethical consequences and risks associated with AI. That's largely a good thing. And so some companies have basically, you know, in fact, a lot of companies have, have set out some ethical principles about how they will use AI. And there'll be things like do no harm, that, that sort of thing. The, the problem with a lot of those initiatives is that they're essentially marketing that is decoupled from the way in which the company actually does business. And so if, if essentially you're trying to market your way out of a problem without actually changing any of your behavior, then you're, 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 you're really not giving an honest narrative about your business. Uh, by contrast, if, if you do exactly what you've just described, Kylie, where you have a, a team of people or an individual, whatever it happens to be that is that has particular responsibility for thinking through the human rights and ethical kind of consequences or implications of the work that the business does, and that that team is integrated with the actual work of the organisation so that engineers can say, Look, I'm sorry, you know, where our ethics, you know, principle says do no harm. I mean, of course, I agree with that. But how on earth am I going to apply something so vague in general? So they can actually work through those, those problems and then say, okay, well, this is what we actually mean in this particular context of 
our company that makes widgets or whatever it happens to be. And so that's that's very, very important. And I think that those companies, I think, again, will be really advantaged because they'll be the ones that I think are, are, are properly engaging with these issues in a way that is going to be likely to induce good change. And I, I think this is the thing I probably struggle with reconciling the most. And, you know, we, we talk a lot to, to companies, obviously we're business led and there's quite regularly conversations around the siloed structure of businesses. And even from a sustainability point of view, you know, if you've got something, for example, legislative like the Modern Slavery Act, that requires you to have conversations with numerous different areas across a business. And my partner works in in technology and, and not to single him out, but it would be very rare over the years that I've heard him sort of say, you know, we need to go and have a conversation with this person sitting in sustainability and ethics before we go about developing the algorithms that sit underneath whatever platform you're developing. And I guess, you know, my question back to you would be, you know, we've joined, Australia has joined this world force first, sorry, multilateral forum on the ethical use of AI. And do you think this forum is the the type of forum that might propel business and, and also government, because they obviously deploy a lot of technology as well, to really think about this ethical side of technology and integrate it more into into how a business or a, or a government division actually works in practice? I do think so. I think what, what those sorts of initiatives can do and the global partnership on AI is a great example of this, is that they can bring to the surface some of the big principles. Uh, what we've tried to do in our project to date uh, and our discussion paper, which is available at tech.humanrights.gov.au, so sets this out in more detail, is, is to work through what this might mean if you're a business or an academic research or whatever it happens to be. And so I, I think you do need to think through those issues. So it's step one, work out what the core principles are. But step two, start to apply those core principles. So if I can make that a bit more concrete, where we've seen things go badly wrong in the development and use of AI, uh, it is very frequently where there's some kind of uh, internal or external procurement process where there's been a failure to kind of translate what the engineer is saying with what the whoever is kind of asking for the new product or service. So if I can give a practical example, perhaps the best known example worldwide of something going very badly wrong is actually from government. And it's, it's known as the Compass system over in the United States. A number of US states basically said, well, we, we want to use AI to help us to make uh, decisions in the criminal justice system in courts. Uh, to determine who's going to be more likely to, you know, re-offend. And then those people will, will get longer criminal sentences, will be less likely to be granted bail. And so they partnered with a company, a tech company, that basically developed them a system to do just that. Now, they knew some of the risks well enough to say to the tech company, look, you, you can't take into account the individual's race. You know, um, that, that that would be potentially discriminatory to take into account um, whether someone was, for example, African-American or Hispanic or white or whatever it happens to be uh, in determining 
what their level of risk is. Um, so, so, so that was something, but in the results, the system that was developed has been kind of delivering recommendations that are much, much harsher for African-American people than for any other group. So, for example, if you're African-American, you're likely to get a, a prison sentence um, recommended that is twice the length of an equivalent uh, white person. So it's it's huge, huge difference. So what went wrong? I think one of the reasons that something um, went, went wrong here was that, that the nuance of the justice system was not properly explained to the tech company. And, and likewise, some of the limitations of what the technology can deliver may not have been properly explained back to the, the, the justice departments in the, in the United States. Because what, what ended up happening was the, the algorithm takes into account things uh, like uh, you know, a person's postcode or what they call in the US a zip code in the United States and lots of places in the United States your, where you live can be very, very closely correlated to your race or your ethnic background. And so in the end, that was something that, that ended up kind of affecting the results. And so to, to draw all that together, uh, what you need to do is actually bring the, these people into the same room and have quite detailed, quite sophisticated conversations about what you want, what the tech can and can't deliver, what the, some of the nuance is that needs to be understood by both parties. And I think you know, it, it then begs another question for me and around what then is the role of the tech company that is appointed to come in and develop these technologies in upholding human rights, right? Like obviously their core purpose is not to deliver on human rights. It's to deliver a technology platform, but they still have a responsibility to respect human rights. And so in that situation, like what is the role of the likes of your, you know, your IBMs, your Amazons, your Microsofts, your Atlassians, et cetera, of the world, quite often who are, that are employed by government or other corporations to, to develop these AI technologies? Yeah, well, look, I think both morally as well as legally, uh, liability or responsibility is something that uh, can be shared around. And so I think as we've seen recently with IBM, Amazon and Microsoft, where they've made announcements about pulling back from the use of facial recognition or developing facial recognition for use in policing and law enforcement. What they've said is, we're not the organisations doing the policing or the law enforcement, but we don't want to be associated with the use of our technology in areas where it is at the moment not sufficiently safe. And and, and that's this pause on that. We're not talking about some very, very high bar here. We're saying it's not sufficiently safe. It's not accurate enough, particularly when it comes to people of colour. And it's too prone to error in, in various other ways as well. But that also more fundamentally, it can be used to create, I guess, a system of mass surveillance, which is something that, uh, that, that can very it can be very repressive on, on people. So I think companies, even if they're just kind of in the sense in the back end of the process, I think that they quite rightly are now turning their minds to how they are also responsible uh, for, for making sure that their technology is, is used responsibly, responsibly itself. Yeah. And I think that mass surveillance is such an interesting one. It, it absolutely scares the hell out of me when I start, 
start thinking about it and that that debate actually got a little bit reinvigorated in Australia with the um, the release of the government's COVID-19 app. And you could see a lot in the media about, well, what does this mean? Is the government going to be tracking me now? You know, are they going to know my every move? How are they going to use it against me? And I found it quite interesting to see and read about a lot of the public debate that happened in the different sorts of specialists and who jumped into the debate to either call for it not to be released or alternatively to send messages of calm to the to the Australian public. I don't yeah, know if no. you had any views on views on that. I, I know that it doesn't really use AI based technology in the way that we're we're talking about, but I find No, it look I agree. I mean and we were quite involved in providing input to the government on how to develop that um, app as safely as possible. And um, many of our recommendations, not all, but many of our recommendations were, were taken on and, and I think the net result was to improve some of the privacy and, and related protections. Um, but I think what that process really shows is how important it is to try to bring to the surface what some of the risks and threats are. You know, where the, where the country, Australia, is a country of, of cane toads, right? And when you think about that history, uh, the, the whole point there was to introduce cane toads to address a real problem in the, in the sugar cane fields, particular blight. And the cane toads did a great job at addressing that blight. You know, did it, they, they were fantastic. They, they performed all of their KPIs, you know, with aplomb. But of course, we now have a problem of tens of millions of cane toads, which is far greater than the original problem. And so I think what we need to do is, is take that lesson whenever we are developing a new piece of technology or starting to use it. And that is to think through what are the downstream likely consequences and be really confident that we've tested it properly before we kind of let it loose and that we're going to be able to get the benefits as well as address those potential harms. So Ed, if you could go forward, say 10 years down the track to 2030, how would you like to see AI technology being used for good? I think, you know, we need to think through a bit more the, the life cycle of a piece of, you know, AI-powered technology that we, you know, we, we, I mentioned earlier that there's this kind of move fast, break things ethos that, that really was very prevalent maybe five or ten years ago. And I think now we're starting to realise how that approach can, can actually break people. And what we want to do is then take a much more mindful approach where we see the benefits of this new technology, but it's not just attractive because it's bright and shiny and new, but, but rather we, we work through in a responsible way how we can develop and deploy it so that it is actually creating the benefits, but, but, uh, but it's not creating harm. And I think that more mature approach uh, as we become more used to, you know, what are the positives and negatives with AI? I think that would mean that we are kind of living in the the kind of world we we want and we need, rather than the kind of more dystopian reality that we're just starting to glimpse as a possibility at the moment. And just finally, we always ask our podcast guests two questions to close. The first one is, what keeps you up at night? Gosh, in my job, there's a lot of <laughs> things that keep me up at night. You know, if, if, I, if I'm honest in the tech space, I think it is that there's that 
too often there's that cavalier approach that I referred to before where, you know, it's the, it's the cane tone problem. Like you may well do exactly what you're setting out to do, but you haven't thought through properly what some of the risks are. Um, but, but, if, but if I were to kind of take a bit more indulgence, I'd say, you know, there's a lot of other human rights issues that have no real connection to technology where we need to do better, particularly um, in areas like uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander justice in, in the way in which we respond to refugees and asylum seekers and, and others. And finally, if you could solve one pressure that society is facing overnight, what would it be and why? Well, I think we, we haven't talked at all about environmental issues. And I think uh, that's, that's probably on the human rights community a bit to be more active in that space. I, I think for, for, for human rights people like me to be able to be more kind of aware and effective in that space and identifying what, what the environmental risks are and, and addressing them to, from a human rights perspective. And I think that's a good one. And it's something that the GCNA is be, is really conscious about um, in terms of improving the understanding and the knowledge for people who specialise in environment, but also people who specialise in human rights, because there's obviously an awful lot of crossover between the two topics. Absolutely. So, Ed, thank you very much for joining us on the Pressures Report today. And thank you, too, for our listeners for joining us for the first season of the Pressures Report. We've thoroughly enjoyed putting together this podcast. We've talked to leaders across a diverse number of sectors and topics, from the state of the Australian and global economy to the rise in climate litigation, business ethics, sustainable investment and ESG, and the opportunities available for us now to get to net zero, as well as today, artificial intelligence. We hope that you've enjoyed our first season. We welcome any feedback that you have and hope that you'll visit our website and watch our bite-sized learning content to understand more about the role you and your business can play in creating a more sustainable future for all. I'm Kylie Porter, and that's all from The Precious Report. The Precious Report is a podcast by the Global Compact Network Australia, produced by Matt All Productions, with music by Jake Amy.